You're listening to the Intrepid Podcast, where three product strategists help entrepreneurs by giving perspectives on design, business, and technology. I'm Jim Forrest. I'm Stephen Roger. And I'm Justin Files. Joining us today is Dean Travers from Luminopia. Welcome, Dean. Did you travel far to get here? I walked all the way across the office, actually. It was strenuous. <laughs> we've done that for the last couple of podcasts. We had Matt in here, and now we've got you in here. I, we'll just walk around later and find more people in the office we're, that we can We're getting interview. known to be the, maybe the laziest the laziest <laughs> of a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> in we're very lazy. Right. We are breaking with tradition in one way, though, is usually, you know, we do these podcasts on a Friday afternoon. Everybody, you know, including the guest, cracks a beer and sits back and relaxes. Dean, unfortunately, we weren't able to get you a juice box. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I'm underage. The trumpet does not promote that activity. That's right. That's right. There's no beer under the table. <laughs> so that's impressive. You're under, you're 20, you're nine, how old are you? 20. 20. And you started Luminopia, which is not typically the type of company people think of like a teenager starting or something. You want to talk a little bit about Let, what it is? And yeah, let's give us the pitch. The pitch. Okay, so... Basically, four years ago now, uh, in my former life as a professional skier, I hit my head, and it ruined the vision in my right eye. And I thought it would go away, but it didn't. It stayed like that, and we went around to doctors, ophthalmologists, optometrists to try and find a way to fix it, and there wasn't one. There was no affordable way for me to improve my vision. And when I got to Harvard last fall, I began hearing from some friends who had lazy eye. They told me how terrible their options were. So now what we've realized is, after doing research, there's a better way. We can take modern neuroscience, proprietary virtual reality, and really entertaining media content, bring it all together to create really cutting-edge treatments for visual disorders that are highly effective, non-invasive, and best of all, they're just fun. So, I mean, the obvious follow-up question is, you've used your own technology to cure your initial problem, right? So it's unofficial. The vision in my, my the eye that was uh, bad, it's a very long story there, it did improve. We're running a clinical trial with Boston Children's Hospital that we'll maybe talk a little bit about more later um, to get official data on the treatment and how well it's working. So what was like the basic treatment option for people, like the people you talked to, before your product came along. I'm sure it was something sufficiently technologically advanced. For cavemen, yes. <laughs> it's eye patching um, for lazy eye. I mean, a condition that affects 350 million people worldwide, the best they can currently do is put a fabric patch over the stronger eye to try and get the weak one to work. Now, for a lot of reasons, that just isn't an effective solution. It's why we see 25 to 50% of people regress after treatment. Their vision gets worse again. Um, I mean, parents and kids hate it. It causes bullying in children. Compliance is terrible because, I mean, no one wants to... Looking like a pirate's only cool for a couple days. <laughs> Not the over a year that it typically takes to go through it. And worst of all, it doesn't work after age eight. So teenagers, adults, basically no options. They're just told to live with it. And so what's the form factor of Luminopia? What is the actual administration of the treatment? Right, so we use low-cost VR. Instead of the, the bulky Oculus Rift type setups, we're taking advantage of mobile virtual reality technology with a smartphone and an off-the-shelf headset. You combine the two and you get um, this powerful medical treatment device. 
Now, it's all based around, if we're looking at the day-to-day, -day, uh, video content. So we can take the videos people already know and love and turn them into treatments. So you can uh, watch Spongebob or Game of Thrones uh, and treat yourself while, while doing it. So where, for a lot of other companies, the cost of content development for sort of such a wide range of consumers was a lot, you guys figured out how to do it for basically free. Yeah, it's, it's almost like cheating. <laughs> so if you guys already have sort of the content there, where's a lot of your sort of design and development effort focused? Right, so early in our, our, uh, our days, back in the spring of 2016, we were founded in January of 2016, we had what we thought was a scientifically valid version of the product. Um, just a small problem was no one knew how to use it because the user interface and the user experience was clunky, I mean, outdated. Really no thought had gone into how to actually make it something that people could pick up and use. That's when I met uh, Mark of Intrepid Labs, uh, the CEO here, and he introduced me to the amazing designers that, that are in the company. And we really took that first version of the product and reimagined what it is, um, rethought all of the interactions with the product, to make it something that, I mean, currently now a, a five-year-old can pick it up and use it with, without really any problems whatsoever. And they can leave it on for the hour that's required every day and enjoy the whole experience. So it really transformed um, the entire product, not only to make it more user-friendly, but also now more scientifically valid because, of course, compliance is better and the experience as a whole is something that's more compelling. So from a roadmap standpoint, I mean, you're a developer, right? Right. Um, I know from the engagement, you know, you would take designs, you'd be able to code it. I'm just curious, though, from a business perspective, right? right. Like, what's, what's, the, what's the rollout? What's the vision for the business plan? There's a lot that we can do. Um, a lot of areas that we're looking to develop into, uh, whether it be different disorders or new technologies within each disorder, but really, we're, we're trying to stay pretty focused right now on lazy eye. Because, I mean, it's a huge problem. Um, and the solutions are really terrible, as we just ran through. So we're focused on really getting that product out there, nailing it as best we can, building up the clinical backing uh, with the data from all of these trials that we want to run, and then getting it into the market and actually into the hands of the people who have that condition. And then after that, however long that may be, uh, next year, the year after, we can begin expanding into further disorders, um, having known that we spent the requisite amount of time to nail down the first indication uh, of lazy eye. So you guys started in January. You're going to be up to like nine people, you said, in the next couple of months or something like that. What has been the biggest... It sounds like you even had a prototype pretty much right after January, and yet you, you still are going through trials right now. What has been the biggest hurdle for you guys? Has it been the, the trials and the FDA approval stuff, or is it more uh, actually getting the product to work, or is it getting people to use the product? Or? Um, probably getting my parents not to kill me to leave college and work on it full time. <laughs> that was <laughs> Okay, perfect. I'm jumping the gun here then. Um, so, I mean, in terms of challenges, we it started out as just a, a project at school um, between me and my co-founders. Then it became an idea for a company. Then it became a company. And as we've been going through, we realized that everything you think you know in a month, you'll need to have done a heck of a lot more than you thought you did now. 
So whether that be the development, um, actually getting the application to be ready to the point where now we can say that's we're pretty comfortable with that side of things. But then you have the regulatory overhead of running a medical device company, whether it be implementing all of these burdensome quality management systems or dealing with the FDA or, or international bodies to make sure that you actually can go to market with the product. And then clinical trials, I mean, they take a long time. Um, you can't do much to accelerate them. It's, it's a, you know, that's what it has to be. But we found that in the time it takes to go through the medical cycle, which is significant even for a really low risk product like ours, it gives us more time to really spend on development um, and making sure that it's all perfect and that it's all as good as it can be. So no time's ever wasted. Um, and now, of course, you mentioned growing the team and, and trying to make sure that we can overcome even more hurdles as intelligently as we can moving forward. So one of the ways that it seems like you guys went from not having a ton of knowledge about this space or the regulations to having a lot of expertise less than a year later is um, finding and leveraging really good mentors and advisors. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Right. So one of the first people we reached out to um, back in November of last year, before we'd really actually started anything, was Dr. David Hunter. Uh, he's the chief of ophthalmology at Boston Children's Hospital and still probably our most renowned advisor. Pretty sure the only reason he replied to our email is because he thought we were in his Harvard Medical School class. <laughs> um, little did he know we fooled him. Um, and we went in and, and he reiterated the size of the problem and jumped on board. And when we had his name, we could really use that to bring more people on board as soon mm -hmm. as they knew Dr. Hunter was involved. Immediately, they also wanted to be involved, and we built professors of neuroscience at MIT to come come into the company, and and people in optometry as well as ophthalmology, and now continuing to grow that advisory side uh, even now. And then, of course, being in Boston, it's kind of one of the hotbeds for entrepreneurship, especially in the healthcare space. Mm. I mean, with all the money Harvard and MIT are throwing at innovation, and the whole area, especially especially Kendall Square. Um, so we now left Harvard, jumped ship, and came to MIT, which all our friends are not very happy about, but now on this side of town, and, and it, there's just a lot of buzz about it. I mean, you can run into a lot of people who've either done it before themselves, really want to do it for the first time, or have this huge industry expertise, especially in healthcare. So people talk about Silicon Valley or New York, but we'd rather really be nowhere else than right here. It's yeah. the perfect place. So can, can I step back? Can we, like, cue harp right now? So you are I wouldn't step back too far. The room's really small. <laughs> so you're a professional skier. Then you went to Harvard, dropped out of Harvard. Like, fill us in a little bit. Like, what are your interests oh based? Like, well, where, it's a genius idea. I generally think startups are, you know, they're usually blowing smoke, you know, in... in Facebook for dogs. We've, 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 we've all seen Uber it in something. I think when we met you, it was an obvious, like, this is, this is obvious. Mm. And wow, of course, right? Um, but what brought you there? What are some of the links? Can, have you, can you fill us in a little bit on, like, right. how do you, how'd you put yeah. all these pieces together? Yeah, so see how far back to, to rewind here. Um, 
I guess all through high school, kind of, I'd been pretty dedicated to skiing. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was on the, the path to, to get there and working really full-time. I didn't leave my small mountain town to go to a high school, maybe in the East Coast. We stayed there, and I, I went to school in, in the town of Colorado. I mean, but as I was doing that, I always kind of enjoyed studying, and, and my brother especially, he was at college during the time and would, would send me back some of the work he was doing, so I would do a lot kind of outside of school and one of the things that I got into was computer programming and so that really kind of was like a spell on me I started doing it and did it more and more and more and more and it was just a great way to fill up a lot of time uh, also made me want to throw my computer out the window a lot which is great but what were you coding but at that point I, I learned to code for a while then I developed an app for skiing that I just wanted myself um, the envy of the town with the skiing app, but uh, but then I got to to school and realized that it was a lot. Um, I had now after let's fast forward to when I started Luminopia. Then it was school Luminopia and skiing, and all of a sudden it it seemed like three of them was probably too many. Luckily that winter I I'd, I'd taken already planned to take the winter off from January 2016 to May to, to ski. I was going to go back to Colorado and do that full-time, essentially, but what I found was that really gave me the time to spend on Luminopia. So skiing, really, it's about four or five hours from 8 or 9 a.m. to whenever that may take you, and then I had every afternoon to, to do something, and I didn't want to just sit bored by the fire, so I started you know, developing the first versions of the app that you saw when I came in and talking to these advisors. And and then we started realizing that there's more there. Um, it was much more impactful than we even initially realized, to the point where at the beginning of the summer, myself and my two co-founders thought, okay, we should really consider, uh, you know, working full-time on this. So at that point, I still had these three things, though. I had school, luminopia, and skiing. But starting this fall, in September, I cut one of them uh, at school. So now it was just skiing and Luminopia. And then it was really hard through the fall having to figure out how to balance the two. And what I've now done, I mean, seeing how Luminopia is progressing and, and how much I love being a part of it and doing everything within the company and, and seeing the progress day to day and month to month is I've now put the skiing on hold um, for the foreseeable time at least until we can get through these clinical trials and see where it is. So now it's just down to Luminopia and focusing on that. And, and so far, I haven't looked back, and it's been really great working on it thus far. You know, you have, like, 26,000 Twitter followers or something like that, presumably because <laughs> you're a professional skier. <laughs> have you broken the news to them that you are now starting a medical device company? <laughs> Ditching uh, skiing forever. No, I, I'm trying to, to get my parents not to kill me at this point. We'll have to worry about other people after that. So, no, remember, we'll see. I remember when you first came in, you first started pitching us, and we we're like, oh, my God, like, he does this and this, and he's going to school full time. I just remember thinking, like, he has to quit skiing or he has to quit the company. I just remember, yeah. like, he'll figure it out eventually. But yeah. It just, it yeah. really is a full-time job launching a product, and all of the things exactly. that you're doing have nothing to do with the synthesis of the idea. Yeah. It has to do with actually doing the business piece and iterating. And when you have to iterate with all this 
yeah. regulatory oversight. It's just a whole different version of iteration yeah. on what we have to do. Yeah. I, I think that's a good good segue about running a business, right? So yeah. it's it's one thing sitting by the fire. You paint this romantic picture yeah. of like, I did my workout for the day. I you yeah. know I hit the mountain and now I'm just coding something cool. Yeah, it's like you're in a whole different spot now, right? Oh, yeah. I just saw the news of Mass Challenge. You know, you're awarded. A, you know, great sort of um, motivational um, pot of money to get going, right? Um, or to continue to keep going. Right. And now you, you're having conversations with a lot of different people yeah. and you're probably pretty far away from doing the coding every day on the mountain, right? So like, what are the challenges there? Right, so I was just joking to my co-founders before I walked in here. I mean, it, my title CEO should really stand for Chief Emailing Officer because <laughs> that seems to be what I spend a lot of time doing now. But no, one of the things we, we realized through the summer was that I, even as I was still finishing the, the work with Intrepid and, and coding that app, was it was very hard for me to sit down and and you know take the 12 hours straight of coding that I would, would typically do. Um, so that's when we realized, okay, we need to expand the team. We brought in some, some great developers. I mean, uh, a guy from Sanofi Healthcare, some engineers who worked in the Department of Defense to really take over that side. Mm -hmm. So now I don't, in a day-to-day -day manner, apart from maintaining the clinical trial version, which of course I developed, really code any of the new products. What, it, what it's transitioned into more is we have this idea of what Luminopia needs to be. Mm -hmm. And there's far more puzzle pieces beneath that, excuse me, than I realized there were um, six months ago. So now it's bringing them all together, whether it be expanding the team even further or bringing the right regulatory strategists, I mean, the right advisors or patent elements. I mean, all these different parts of the company are take a lot of time. So I've had to transition and get used to the new role, but I I really like both sides. I mean, I still love looking at what the developers are doing with the code and, and seeing where the product is going to go on that side of things and looking at demos as we make them and, and all of that. But definitely I've had to transition now from a, a doer into a kind of envisioner and emailer. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any things that you've taken from your skiing background, so being in a very competitive sport with a lot of danger and being sort of in the top 100 worldwide, where you've sort of taken those perspectives or approaches and applied it to the scary fact of starting and running a business? Uh, right. Luckily, I never have to worry about waking up in the hospital here, um, which is great. The experience as a whole, though, has actually helped a lot. I have to say, I don't think I'd be able to do or even be here if it weren't for the skiing component. I mean, a few things that really stick out to me when I look back at, you know, what value that brings to this new environment is just the kind of the understanding of effort that has to go into stuff. I mean, it was, it, it's a lot. Both things are a lot. And that's why I had to eventually make the call that, you know, you can't do both. Each of them should should take 110% of what you have, as much as I hate the 110% <laughs> saying. Um, it's true, and, and really being able to transition the work ethic into this new environment has been very, very helpful, as well as, I mean, some parts of a leadership type of component um, to everything and decision-making. I mean, luckily my 
life isn't on the line, but I still, you know, the, the decisions that have to be made and being able to approach them in, in, in ways that will likely lead to the best outcomes and knowing the pressure that can be on you has been very helpful going through the process. I think there's a really cool analogy there too about, you know, going down a ski mountain and, and the type of thrill that that is and the fact that you're going very quickly and you, the only thing you can do is make the best decision that you can at any point in time. Um, and, and if you wait to make the decision, you're probably in trouble. It's better to make a bad decision quickly. <laughs> it, it really is true. <laughs> but no, but I think... Um, I just think that that analogy is really interesting, and a lot of people wouldn't compare doing business uh, to being the excitement of, of going down quickly down a mountain. But there are some people that do feel that way about it, and that you clearly yeah. do in that way as well. Yeah, exactly. I, it was actually a very funny um, connection I made between the two. So before you you start a, a competition in skiing, I mean literally right before you you're competing, you you all line up because you have a start order each person one person goes down the course at a time and and it's kind of a surreal atmosphere right at the start especially in the the bigger events where everyone's incredibly focused and honed in and i was sometimes the guy that was more loose and would joke with the other guys which they hated but um, <laughs> but then eventually you you're the one who's standing in the gate and looking out at what you eventually have to tackle there and as the other night at the Mass Challenge final award ceremony, I realized they were lining people up to go on and give their speech on the stage. And everyone was lined up in the order, and everyone was really tense. And, and then, of course, you're the person, and then you walk up and you perform in a certain sense. Like, you have to remember your lines. You have to speak as you, you know you should. And it was very similar in kind of how you feel internally with pressure and maybe nerves would be there. Um, and I think that's an element where it just, I know I've had to deal with that. A lot of the people, uh, especially my peers, maybe have never gone through kind of dealing with pressure like that. But I find in situations that it helps a lot kind of to be able to tie it back to what I've done before and then feel more confident or comfortable doing any of these kind of elements that are so new to me, uh, at least being able to connect them to something that I know. So can I shift the focus a little bit onto the product design? Um, because there, there's certain elements I'm curious about, um, especially <coughs> the video component and what you're using, what videos you're pulling. Um, you know, from a from a naive standpoint, it's like, are you just connecting to YouTube, and are you building um, these dependencies on these large services as part of your business backbone? And what are some of the decisions you're making yeah. on your sources and in you know, just where's your head at with that? Right. So right now the easy option is YouTube. I mean, you can, there's so much content there. Uh, I mean, the only problem being is it's somewhat stratified content or individual videos, but, but really the model works the same in terms of getting the data and testing that works well. And then in the future, of course, we want to have the ability to take media and data from other sources. So maybe now it's a, uh, Hulu or, or Netflix or something and all of a sudden you're watching the show called Orange is the New Black yeah yeah that you're watching that um, in Luminopia and we're kind of architecting the entire application or, or product device whatever you would call it to so it can easily transition to any of these different environments so that it's very flexible um, 
so that we can throw it into a new situation. Maybe you sign a partnership with a new company who has all new media, then we can plug that in easily and pull that in and, and expand the amount of content that the user can watch on, on their end. I, I'm curious just a little bit about um, just like timing, right? Headsets, I was at South by Southwest and they had the, the VR, AR component. And somebody had you know, this really ridiculous booth where we did the first full-length VR movie. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think, why? Right, right. Like, it's like such an uncomfortable experience. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to spend two and a half hours with a headset on. Um, I'm just curious about like the sessions that you have with people, yeah. what some suggested time is. Do you have any, since VR is so new and everyone is so intrigued by just any data you could tell about it, you know, are you finding there's like a, a great sitting time for people that, you, you know, like what, what are you finding that I think the average person who's not working in VR would find intriguing? Right, so other people in the VR industry may not agree with this statement, but I don't think it's necessary to use only VR content. Mm -hmm. I think there's this huge prior body of content that can be leveraged in VR in this new environment, which is why 360 videos, I mean, they're just, they're not there yet, um, to be completely honest. I mean, they're not ready for the mass market. Um, there are lots of things that have to be figured out with getting people to look at the right place and even have engaging content everywhere. Um, so what we're doing is, you know, taking a step back and saying, um, maybe getting off the VR high horse and, and saying, you know, what do people already like? Um, well, they like videos right now. And what we do then is present them in this new way in which they're much more immersive than normal. They're now one-on-one with the video in a screen that's far larger than you would have outside of a VR headset. Um, And for our purposes, that's all we need. Because as a medical device with these other elements, really we just need to make sure that people use it for 30 minutes to an hour a day. Um, And what we found in all of the testing is we have, uh, we do some usability things with families and, and children will come in and they put the headset on with with the treatments turned off, of course, just to test out the the functionality, and none of them have yet to use it for under 45 minutes before their parents have to make them leave. Um, So they just, they like it, it's nice. You can can sit back and put your head back and look in the same place the whole time. It's not a strenuous experience um, at all, so it allows you to, to be more comfortable. Of course, in the future, VR content gets better, then we're definitely open to expanding more into that that realm as well. So one of the other areas where you guys are really <clears throat> sort of breaking new ground and, and that everybody's trying to figure out right now is what is the UI for VR? Um, we don't we don't really have a good way to touch things and there it's very hard to create interactions that work across a number of different headsets, particularly the cheaper ones that you guys are using, and it's so essential for you to get the right input so that you can then configure the treatment. Um, so can you just give a couple examples of the, the sort of configuration UI that you've come up with and how you made that engaging? You're looking at the wrong guy. Justin came up with it. <laughs> what we found was, I mean, and Justin can even weigh in here, I'm sure he has some thoughts as well, but just making it consistent so that the user knows what to expect. 
they can go into any screen and you're interacting with things in the same way and that they're getting the appropriate feedback so that they know, I mean, that it's clear. Uh, very similar to, I would imagine, when you design any application, you want to convey a sense that the user knows where they are mm. or what they're doing and how they're doing it. And the challenge was just how to do that in, in VR. Um, and I, we came up with a lot of ways to, to work on that. And I'll let Justin maybe jump in with some of the, some of the parts. Yeah, I mean, to reiterate kind of what you had said, VR has become, it, puts, it makes the visual aspect realistic, like as if it is in the real world. But the interaction aspect could not be less realistic. It's like uh, when people were seeing, you know, a document on their computer and it looks like a document on the table, but then they can't go right on their monitor or put white out on their monitor, right? And that's really the spot that we're in right now. Like people aren't used to interacting with it. And so I literally didn't hit the nail on the head. Michael Abate, lead designer here, came up with just a bunch of really cool uh, uh, visual feedback for when you do something. So you know that you're doing something right and it feels good. And it's it, just giving that positive feedback loop all the time. Whenever you uh, stop moving your head around, uh, these two circles start kind of uh, spinning in alternate directions. So you know you're selecting something. Um, as you're hovering over the videos, they're kind of expanding in this animated fashion. Just a lot of, a lot of visual feedback that's extraordinarily exaggerated from the real world. It's nothing like in the real world, but you have to have that because you can't just reach out and you know, hit play on something. I remember actually the hardest thing was you, you would have initially wanted to put it in a bunch of different headsets and you're like, not all headsets have the little clicky buttons. So you have to design it with no buttons. And we're like, no, <laughs> just give us one button. <laughs> That we're cruel, uh, <laughs> so yeah. And then just to, through a lot of testing, we found what worked, and we stuck with it, and it's been shown to be pretty effective thus far. So one of the big things about the interface and the experience that I really love is just this narrative, right? That there was a decision to kind of put the user in a world, right? Um, can you guys talk about that a little? I, I say you guys now. Um, can you talk about that? why that decision happened and you know what the audience what the audience was that was going to drive that being the right choice for your product it happened because we right. said dean what do you want it to look like he goes space boom we're done <laughs> <laughs> uh, the actual story was uh we were we were on a call and and i think michael or 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 you justin had, had mentioned that maybe space would be an interesting theme and i was i was thinking uh, i I'm not sure. I mean, at this point, um, love to explore things. And then my co-founder, who I thought was paying no attention, uh, <laughs> and I think he actually might not have been paying attention, suddenly jumped in with this insightful comment as to how space was the right way to go. And from there, we all thought, well, wow, that, you know, it makes sense. I mean, we went because New Frontiers with not only treatment, but with this whole extraterrestrial theme. And we found it really helps transport people into this cool environment, something that you can't get just looking around. I mean, a lot of um, some VR apps transport you to somewhere that you're familiar with, mm. but I personally like to go somewhere that you can't get every day. I think that provides more of an interesting experience for people, and, and the space theme has just worked really well, and we're probably going to continue with that long into the future. So you mentioned New Frontiers, you mentioned the future. <clears throat> Where in a couple of years do you see the company um, for both sort of yourself and the company, but also where do you see the impacts to the users? Like what is the world 
post-Luminopia? So, I mean, my, my goals, I'll start there within the company, are to, I just want to take it as far as I possibly can. If I'm the right person to still be leading Luminopia and to, to you know, bringing the vision into reality, uh, pun intended there, then, <laughs> then that's where I'll be. I mean, it's, it's a passion of mine. And in terms of the technology, it has this huge capability to go far beyond what even traditional VR or consumer VR can do. I mean, we can control everything about what and how the user is seeing things, and um, we're going to be doing testing through the next few years to see how far beyond lazy eye we can expand the influence and how many people we can actually bring this product to to, to help them. And that's the real goal: is to get it into people's hands and and have it actually change their lives in some way and in a positive way, and know that we we had some part in creating a technology that actually had an impact. We consult a lot with medical device manufacturers at this point. I, I feel like we have five meetings a week right now about this. And one thing comes up constantly, which is stigma, right? Um, where a lot of people want to solve health issues, but are dealing with stigma being a big part of the design challenge, where, um, for example, if you're talking to diabetics, not not letting them know that, the, or making them think constantly that they're diabetics, right? Right. And I feel like your product has actually crossed a road, which I yeah. think is part of your genius, to be honest, is you've removed stigma mm. from the experience. Um, I actually would go as far to say some people might want to just use it because, <laughs> um, which is genius, yeah. to be honest, and you should be very proud of that. But I do want to know, was there any intentionality in your thinking to... I mean, you did talk about the eye patch not being cool. Um, I, I would think anybody who's working in medical devices wants to know, like, what's your secret, man? How did you get there? How did you remove the stigma? I'm going to make it up now and say I meant it the whole time. <laughs> um, uh, but, no, I mean, in, in reality, my goal with the whole product and knowing that if it's actually going to be the solution that it deserves to be, uh, people have to like it. And one thing I always wanted and still want in this product and products in the future is that if you did not tell them it were a medical device, they wouldn't know. Mm. Nobody would know that it's meant to do anything to improve a condition. That way, you're not the, the weird kid for using luminopia, like with eye patches currently with the bullying. Um, it's actually something that people want to use. I mean, you, you have one... Maybe we're doing testing and one of the kids is wearing it and the other kids, you know, don't get to. They're all like, let me use it, let me use it, let me use it. So we actually have people wanting to use this device. And we're really excited to see what that does to actual compliance in the real world as we're doing it through the trials and seeing how, how often people interact with it. But we have high hopes for that. And definitely it's kind of a core tenant that leads the design throughout is not making people, you know, feel bad that they have... A disorder because that's not the point right well thinking of i remember as a kid you know if you have a friend that had asthma and they would check how good their breathing was they had that thing that you would blow into and the little blue ball would go on the and spirometer I do, uh, is that what it's called something like that yeah. i think it's called the fun fun machine uh, but I, I remember looking at it and being like oh i don't i want that like i want to yeah. do that like it doesn't it seem like fun. a it's yeah. a toy yeah. And I, I can't really think of a lot of medical devices that do do that. And so right. bravo for, uh, for crossing you. that. 
well, you did it as well. You designed the thing. <laughs> we, yeah, we had a great team that worked on it. Um, Zon Klotz, um, Michael Abate, and myself did a lot of design and UX stuff for it. And I, I remember when we sat down originally, we were like, I, first of all, we've never obviously designed anything like this because it's so unique. Um, and it's such an interesting challenge. And the other thing was, we're like, we are so freaking excited to do this. Like, this just seems like a great challenge. And it was a blast. It was a blast working with you guys. And we wish you absolutely the best going forward. I agree. Um, I think that brings our show to a close. So special thanks to Dean Travers from Luminopia. Um, it's going to take over the world one one disease or, or one medical issue at a time. I'm, actually really excited to see what you do next because I did hear the term products um, plural <laughs> so very intrigued thank you to everyone at Intrepid I mean we wouldn't be where we are now if it weren't for everyone who put effort into the project and was a part of um, being with Luminopia and we're you know can't even say how excited we are to get what we work together on out into the world and see see what kind of impact we can make The Intrepid Podcast is produced by Intrepid, a mobile design, development, and strategy firm with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and New York City. Our intro music is by Forrest James. You can visit us on the web at intrepid.io slash podcast and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash intpd. If you'd like to be a guest of the podcast, visit our website or email us at podcast at intrepid.io.